The eagle-eyed or the eagle-eared among you may have noticed a particular through line through our readings this morning. You didn't, you didn't hear it in the epistle, the one that Ray read from 2 Corinthians. You did hear it in Job, the first reading, and you heard it in the psalm that Bruce chanted, and you heard it in the gospel that we just read. Does anybody know what it is, the through line? You can talk back at me at this point. You're not frozen. You have mouths and voices. And you can shout back at me if you know the theme for the day. Anybody? I hear some, oh, okay, I see some, yes, uh-huh. Uh, you heard it in Bruce's little improvisation at the end of the, waves start getting us there, storms at sea. Yes, uh, maybe, maybe a little visual illustration will help you. My mom made me bring this today. It's boats. It's Boat Sunday. Boats and sailors. I think I can put this here and I'm not going to knock it over. I hope. <laughs> if I knock it over, there are Legos that are going to go everywhere. So just fair warning, everybody. Uh, it is Boat Sunday. Boats and ships and storms at sea and terror and the power of God. I mean, we can go as literal with this or as theological as you want to go. The general thematic through line this morning, though, as far as I can tell, comes from this famous line in Psalm 107. One, some went down into the sea in ships and plied their trade in the deep waters. Psalm 107 could very well describe the disciples as we find them in this story from Mark's Gospel that Ken just read for us. In their fishing boats with a whole fleet of other boats crossing the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum, which is the Jewish part of the sea, across to the southern part, the Gentile part of the Sea of Galilee around the region of the Gerasenes, which is where the next little bit of Mark's gospel is going to take place. So this is, a, this is like a transition moment in Mark's gospel, right? This is a, it's a liminal text if we're going to get fancy and literary about it. It's the ending of one chapter of Jesus's ministry and the beginning of something different, something new, something more mysterious, more dangerous, right? Something more threatening. A storm is gathering in Mark in more ways than one. This would have been a great Sunday to sing Eternal Father Strong to Save. Um, not that I'm critiquing. Actually, those of you who grew up in evangelical households like me are going to get Jesus Savior pilot me a little bit longer, so I'll take that over Eternal Father Strong to Save. We got some good ship and boat and storm music for you this morning, so just get ready for it. This storm, though, that arises over the Sea of Galilee that day, this is a storm that shakes Jesus' disciples to their core, which is in itself worth paying attention to, right? Because these guys are fishermen. I mean, they've gone down to the sea in ships. They've plied their trade in the deep waters. They know the currents. They know the winds. They know the, the sudden changes on the Sea of Galilee. Those of you who have been to the Holy Land, you know the Sea of Galilee to this day is a very changeable. You can be calm as, you know, a Sunday morning one minute, and 10 minutes later a storm has arisen, and things are very different. And these guys know the vagaries of this ecosystem very well. They're like the they're like the Columbia River bar pilots of their day, right? This group of men and women with specialized training handed down generation by generation, expert at guiding boats through stormy waters. This is what they do. And still, as the writer of Psalm 107 wrote several hundred years before this story takes place, those who go down to the sea in ships, those who ply their trade in the deep waters, either in spite or because of their expertise and their training, these ones have a much deeper respect than maybe anybody else for the power of the wind and the surging of the waves, the, the might of God on the mighty waters. A stormy wind arose, Psalm 107 says. It tossed high the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens. They fell back to the depths. Their hearts melted 
because of their peril. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. This is no ordinary storm. The disciples know that. The readers of Mark's gospel would have known that too. This is like the, the storm to end all storms, if you like. And, and maybe in a, in a disenchanted age like ours, we have to do a little bit of extra work as 21st century people to put ourselves back in the headspace of a first century listener of this story, a first century follower of the way, somebody who's hearing the story right around the year 70. That's when scholars think this story was probably written down. Somebody who has watched his or her world fall apart in every conceivable way. The year 70 is the year that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Roman armies. Jerusalem is reduced to a rubble. The soldiers salted the earth to keep anything from coming back. That's what Christian communities had experienced. And that's the context in which they first began to write down these stories about Jesus, collecting them at first under the name of this writer, Mark. Nobody knows who Mark is, but it's the first gospel text we've got, the first to be written, a generation or two past the time of the disciples. So whoever Mark was, he or she is writing down these legends, these stories, these sayings, these treasured memories of parents and grandparents, but filtering them through the context of a, of a very different world that he knows. It's different than Jesus' world. This is a world, Mark's world, is a world that seems to have fallen apart at the seams. Mark is living in a, a kind of a dark ages, really. These are the stories that he and his people would have told around their campfires. Stories about a storm that is so dangerous that even the steeliest of fishermen was terrified by it. Stories about one who had the, the power of the creator, one who speaks and stills the waves, a revelation of one so powerful that, as the disciples say at the end of the story, even the winds and the seas, even the most dangerous forces that we know about, even the winds and the seas obey him. I gotta tell you, I don't think that this is a story with a tidy little moral lesson about learning to face your fears. There are no psychological bromides in this story. There's no neat little tidy spiritual lesson at the end that you can jot down and put on your bathroom mirror to remind you, you know, don't forget to trust God when you're afraid. Or as the, the, the Bach text later on says, you know, those who stand like a rock when the troubles of faith roll around them are the ones with faith, right? In the words of the Bach cantata, this story is not actually being told in order to teach you a little lesson about how to face your fears. This story is being told in the context of a world that has been utterly destroyed. It's a story about a storm so mighty that it's not even a literal storm anymore. It's a metaphor, it's a symbol. This is the, this is the cosmic storm against which the disciples are struggling. This storm has the existential power of the prince of destruction, the powers of this world, the dominion of violence and fear and devastation. This storm is COVID-19 and Hurricane Claudette and Katrina and Sandy all rolled into one. Every other storm or hurricane in modern memory that has served to heighten our awareness of the dangerous divisions between individuals and peoples in our world. We might all be in the same storm. We are not in the same boat. And if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that we are in some very different boats from one another. This storm is the rise of Christian nationalism. This storm is partisan divides so acrimonious that arms are stored up and conspiracy theories run rampant in the streets. This storm is a world teetering on the brink of ecological devastation. Sea levels rising, nations disappearing, resources dwindling, entire states being consumed with forest fires every year. 
with increasing power. This storm is not a little summer squall, right? This storm is the apocalypse. This storm is the threat of the end of the world. That's the storm that Jesus stills, right? The power of existential fear and violence and destruction. And he doesn't do it with spiritual bromides, right? He doesn't inspire his men. You have to face your fears, my lad, and row stronger to the winds. There's no inspirational sayings in this story. Jesus utters not a single word. He simply wakes up from slumber and rebukes and silences the waves. Those two verbs are really critical to understanding what Mark is trying to do with this story. Rebuke and silence are two verbs in Mark's gospel that are associated with exorcism, not with miracles. Jesus is not magically stilling the waves to show his power. Jesus is rebuking the waves. He's exorcising them. The biblical scholar David Johnson says, Jesus is not offering us therapy for our fears. He's offering us exorcism of a world, of a world that has fallen out of whack. So who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Last week, as many of you know, my family was on vacation at the coast, and my brother-in-law Ben and I put together this Lego pirate ship, which I got when I was 10 years old. She's a, I'm told, a two-masted brigantine. Somebody out there actually knows what that means. It's not me. I, I am no sailor. Gardner Grice, our head sexton, took me sailing on the coast of Santa Barbara a couple years ago, and I was violently seasick off the, it wasn't the port bow. I don't actually know where it was, the back of the boat. I know, I know there's a fancy word for that. Uh, I'm no sailor. The Black Seas Barracuda, which you see in front of you, is no precisely rendered model sailing ship. Historical pre pre precision is not what Lego was going for in 1989 when this set was released to the absolute glory of my nine-year-old eyes. I got this ship as a Christmas present that year, and this Lego pirate ship was like one of the most wondrous things I had ever owned. It was one of the biggest things I'd ever owned, and I remember it sitting like in my bedroom at night, and I would stare at it almost like it was glowing. There was fascination there, right? And at a certain level, I thought the fascination was pirates, right? What nine-year-old boy doesn't love stories of buccaneers on the high seas? At a deeper level, I think it was the ship itself that compelled me. Something about the the shape of her, the, the curve of her plastic hull, the intricacies of her deck and her cabins, the elegance of her rigging, the bright colors of her helm and her gunnels. I mean, to borrow from Catherine Hepburn in a Philadelphia story, she might be, ma she might be made of Legos, but my, she was yar. <laughs> and reconstructing her last week, discovering that all of her pieces were still in the box, thank you, Mom, wherever you are, her rigging's a little bit faded, but it's still entirely serviceable. And then watching her take shape on the kitchen table, it was like that moment in the, uh, the film Goonies, you know that, that movie where One-Eyed Willie's pirate ship sails around, I think it's the edge of Tillamook Head or something like that, and it appears to everybody all at once and then goes sailing off into the sunset in the process, saving the town of Astoria from the evil clutches of Mr. Perkins and his golf club developers so the Goonies celebrate. That's the final shot in the Spielberg film, this shimmering pirate ship from, you know, the 19th century there against the sunset sky, and that scene still has the power to reduce me to tears. I watched it a couple months ago, and I started weeping, and at a certain level, that's about nostalgia, right? I watched that film when I was a kid, I loved it. At a certain level, there's probably some residual, like, pandemic trauma in there. But there's also something so amazing to me about that scene, because it's about beauty, right? It's about the power 
of something beautiful from a previous era, something silent and magical and beautiful gliding stealthily and cutting through the ravages of power and corrupt capitalism and rebuking those forces, cutting them off in mid-speech. When that pirate ship rounds the bend in Goonies, police officers and news reporters and corporate overlords are reduced to silence. The beauty of that ship rebukes them and it robs them, if only for a moment, of their power. They're caught in awe and wonder, in thrall to something amazing. I think that's the power of the one who laid the foundations of the earth and prescribed the bounds of the sea. I think that's what Jesus's rebuke of the storm probably actually felt like. Not an act of superhuman magical strength, no. I think it felt like a simple act of grace-filled beauty. This majestic ship gliding across the horizon, not just riding every wrong and saving the Goonies. The ship does that. I mean, and, and who are Jesus' disciples if not ancient Goonies? I mean, that's one way of thinking about them, right? So the ship doesn't just save the Goonies. The ship doesn't just save the town of Astoria. It then keeps going. It points them further, as if to say, you guys, your dreams are too small. This was never about a miraculous rescue. I mean, look at what might still be possible. Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? I suspect for a lot of us, the past 16 months have felt like one of the worst storms that we have weathered in our lives. And even now, as the waters begin to calm, it is good, it is appropriate for us, in the words of Psalm 107, to give thanks to the Lord for his, for his mercy. But if today's story from Mark's gospel has any kind of meaning for us, I think it's that it's not enough for us to just make it to the safe harbor and then give thanks. I think we're invited to do something much more challenging, which is to keep going, to voyage further past the boundaries that we used to think would, would hem us in and into waters that maybe we've never traveled before, waters that are dangerous, to push past the horizons of our hopes for a moment and dream about what might still be possible, what might still lie ahead, how much remains to be done, how much is still undone. The pirates of old were not the most religious of men. They were not pious gentlemen. But there is, you may be interested to learn, a kind of a I call it the pirate's prayer. It's attributed to the English mariner Sir Francis Drake, who was sometimes kind of a pirate. I have actually no reason to believe that Sir Francis Drake actually penned this prayer. I suspect that's a dubious historical attribution. But it's one of my favorite prayers, nevertheless. It's the prayer of, a, of an expert sailor who has seen firsthand the power of the water, who has gone down to the sea in a ship and seen the beauty and the terror of God's majesty upon the mighty waters, and who can appreciate the power of a storm to unsettle you, and maybe find in that unsettledness a nugget of the, the trust that Psalm 107 is talking about. So the pirate's prayer goes something like this. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well-pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, 
we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. When having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity, and in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of a new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture onto wider seas, where storms will show your mastery. For losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future with strength, courage, hope, and love. May it be so. Anchors away, my friends.